Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 20, A Most Remarkable Day. August 9th, Day 4. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Day four. It was a remarkable day. I want to tell you about it. I also am lifted up by you. Blink of an eye listeners listening in now from all parts of the world. That is remarkable. As we listen in together, even at different times or different time zones, from Canada to Serbia, China to Saudi Arabia, Rwanda to Brazil, and listeners across the United States from coast to coast and north to south. We listen together to the same story, impacting each other in our thoughts and our open hearts as we each travel on our own healing journey. Yes, we are all interested in trauma healing. And it begins with ourselves, learning from each other and making needed changes in our lives. Together, we're manifesting more healing for the planet through what we hold and believe is possible and celebrating the moments of tenderness and love, even in times of great distress and despair. So here we go as day four unfolded. The text I read was from Archer's high school friend, Jennings Schweitzer. It was late in the night. Oh, I was so tired. 12.59 a.m. Hi, Mrs. Semft. I just wanted to make sure that the whole Semft family knows my thoughts and prayers are with them and that I love Archer as if he is my brother and I would do anything for him. I know he will recover because he is the strongest person that I know and he's got the heart of a lion. I woke with a jolt and sat straight up, gasping for breath. Oh, my God. I looked over at Archer, but I realized I was not in the hospital. I was home in Cape May in my own bed. I was confused. Billy was at the hospital with Archer. He and Dewey had insisted I come home. Right. We had traded places last night. Oh, my God. It was so confusing for a second. I reached for my phone on the bedside table for any update from Billy. The time on my phone was 5.02 a.m. I was discombobulated. 
I had to remember, yes, I had awakened earlier to the ping of a text message. I had been sending so many text updates and reading texts from friends until about 2 a.m., I guess. I must have nodded off a minute. I reached for my phone and it was Billy at 2.12 a.m. Louise, still problems with lungs. They have tried to release more air. His oxygen levels are better now. I will send message as soon as I know more. Stay home. Come back in the morning. You need rest. I was aware of how very tired I was as I rolled over to try and go back to sleep. But I was restless. I awakened a few more times over the next couple hours to the sounds of the intensive care unit. That sci-fi rhythmic imitation of life from machines. It had gotten into my memory bank, haunting me. And it had not even been a full 72 hours we had been in the hospital. I couldn't get those sounds out of my head. The next time I awoke was daylight. It was 6.55. I climbed out of bed, aware that those constant electronic beeping noises of the intensive care unit were still sounding in my ears. They had me confused. I was home, but the sounds were in my head. They were pulsating in my head faintly, as if I were still there in the ICU. It was hard to shake them. I wanted to start the day early. I knew Archer would be having visitors, and I needed to awaken Pete. It was Saturday. As I got up to get showered and dressed, I couldn't stop thinking of how Archer's left arm moved ever so slightly yesterday, like a little pop-up. I know it happened when he was gagging, and I understand that that was likely a spasm. Oh my God, it was awful each time they suctioned his lungs with that snake-like tube. He was so distressed every time. Oh, thank the Lord, it's not often. It was upsetting for me to watch even though I held Archer's hand, I suppose more for my benefit than his. But there was something else about his arm. I thought I felt a pulse-like feeling as I was very gently scanning my fingers up and down his arms, searching for movement. I had asked him if he could move his left arm. I swear he did. It was a hair split move, but it wasn't a muscle reflex from pain. Oh my God, I don't know how he's managing all this. I can't imagine what it is like for him. As I washed my hair, I mulled over what I could remember of what Dr. Radcliffe had told us yesterday. I was trying to learn as fast as I could. I appreciated Dr. Radcliffe's knowledge. 
and willingness to come back. He didn't have to come back to talk with us and try to answer our questions. As I got out of the shower, I realized I was getting a little clearer about a feeling I had pass over me yesterday, ever so fleetingly, as I listened and tried to take in what Dr. Radcliffe was saying to Paula, Petey, and me. I was faintly aware of the feeling, but I was more concentrated on what Dr. Radcliffe was saying. You know what that's like, right? When you have a thought, but it's not really even a thought yet. It's just something that's there in your mind, sort of formulating, kind of taking shape, but you're thinking about other things. And then later it just sort of comes to you and it's familiar, like what you wanted to articulate earlier, but you just couldn't because it was just too far back in the recesses of your experience. But it was part of your experience. Your brain just hadn't put words to it yet. You know what I mean? Well, what just came to me as I began to brush my teeth was this. It was more of what I had wanted to say to Dr. Radcliffe, but it would not have been polite. But the words just came to me. I felt there was something that was important about what I felt and wished I could have said, maybe more for myself than for Dr. Radcliffe. But it was something like this. You'll go home, Dr. Radcliffe. You'll leave this hospital and go home and have dinner tonight with your wife. Maybe have a beer or a glass of wine and enjoy your young children. And we'll be here. I didn't even know if Dr. Radcliffe had a family, but I figured he probably did. And what I was really thinking was, and you're so lucky, Dr. Radcliffe. You're so lucky. The ease of a daily comfortable life that you will return to, to watch your child move freely and laugh and run about. My child did that too, Dr. Radcliffe. Please never take that for granted. Oh, sir, you are so lucky to be able to leave this trauma center and not watch Archer's suffering. I wasn't resentful. It was not like that at all. It was more of an awakening or an awareness that our lives would never be the same. How precious movement is. And that there are two worlds, two very different worlds. He was in the world of freedom, the world of movement, the world where you are free to move about with ease. I knew that world too. And I loved that world. But I felt I was being thrown into a different world vicariously as a parent. My child 
may never have freedom of movement again. Movement he had already tasted the sweetness of. Movement he knew well and loved. Movement he and I perhaps took for granted. No, Lord, please tell me that's not true. Archer will walk again, right, Lord? As I swished the water and rinsed out my mouth, I felt I felt that split. Like, here I was, home, brushing my teeth. Everyone in the house sleeping soundly. A Saturday morning on a summer vacation at the beach. But Archer was in the intensive care unit and might not ever be running in the sand on the beach again. And I couldn't imagine what it was like for him. I mean, he was alert. Oh, thank God he was alert. But he was alert and not able to move. Can you imagine? He was alert, but not able to talk. He was alert, but not able to breathe. And the doctors had said he would not be moving again, like ever that everything from his neck on down wouldn't move again. And all of that horribleness was lined in a hospital bed up there in Atlantic City. And I too could detach myself and stay here for a little bit where there was ease and comfort. And I could say, you know, maybe I'll go for a quick swim or I'll go for a bike ride or I'll clean up the kitchen. Because I was here. But the only place I wanted to be was there. Like, (laughs) I couldn't get back there fast enough. So crazy. I mean, I didn't want to stay here. It was comfortable and normal. So easy and wonderful. Our family's happy place was safe. But I didn't want to be comfortable when Archer was not. And I felt he wasn't safe at all. It's just so weird. I wanted to be back by his side on the battleground with him. I couldn't leave him. It's a strange thing, isn't it? I wonder if you've ever experienced something similar where your worst nightmare was unfolding, but it was real. And all you wanted to do was to be there with the darkness so that he was not alone and so that I could face it with him and know what the enemy really was. Yes, I wanted to face it. The last thing I wanted was to retreat or run from it or even to rest from it. I mean, it's important to retreat to refresh ourselves, and to reset. And not when the battle was underway. I've always been leery of so many messages in society to get away, just to run away. Oh, it's so important to rest. 
but it's so dangerous to bypass and not engage with hard things. I knew this from my mediation practice. I knew this. It would not help me or my family to pretend to numb out. I also knew it might, at least to get us by. But I didn't want to go that route for too long. Oh my God, what is happening to me? There would be a time and a place for ease, I prayed, but I knew it was not now. I wasn't even interested in such things. Everything seemed so trivial. Things I treasured as I looked around my bedroom also seemed trivial. I just wanted to get back to the hospital. I was aware of also not wanting to dismiss what I knew was good in favor of action. I didn't want to kid myself that my moving forward with activity was always right. I knew it could be a reaction to numbing out the pain of this loss. I had done that before in my life. I also knew we needed action. Oh, Lord, where do these thoughts come from? God, please help me to discern. Please help me to discern. I told myself, stop thinking about this. It's taking up too much time. I'm still here. I slipped on my shoes to hurry down the steps. Okay, I'll give it more thought on the drive. I flew down the steps. There was no way I wanted Archer to be left alone in this pain, and I needed to get there. I wanted to be up close with him there. He was my son. I suppose it was instinctual mother energy. Have you ever been placed in a situation like that? When a child is in danger and as a mother, oh, what we wouldn't do or what we would do, right? I think it's just instinctual, like mother wiring. I mean, that's how it was for me, like a moth to the light. As Pete and I drove up the Garden State Parkway from exit zero to the hospital, we drove in silence. It was beautiful out, already hot, but not blistering hot. The road was so straight. I guess we both had a lot on our minds. I thought more about sadness and pain and various ways to seal it off just to get by. Now I wanted to be aware of that. I thought about Dr. Radcliffe, and I wondered if he had had any emotional pain in his life he wanted to wish away, pretend was not there, or figure out a way around it. And for some crazy reason, the term clinical distancing came to my mind. As we drove, I remembered the term professional distancing. It was a concept we had discussed in my ethics class in law school related 
to standards of practice for lawyers. We were supposed to be distanced from our clients. I wondered about this as we drove. I remembered talking with my ethics law professor, Tom Schaefer, about it. And here, all these years later, I was thinking about it again, like, dear Lord, 30 years later, crazy. I wondered to myself, why are professionals supposed to be distanced from their clients? As if our judgment and sage advice would be clouded? The more I thought about it, it seemed like it would be a matter of ethical practice to not be clinically distanced. I mean, how is any professional to be effective and really help people if they don't understand what it is that's most difficult for the people they want to help? I mean, for any of us, really, how are any of us to be effective and helpful as parents, as friends, as lovers, if we do not understand what it is that our child or our friend or our partner is experiencing? As I rolled these thoughts over in my head, it seemed to me that the distance we place I mean, the distance we naturally have in time and space between ourselves, but also the emotional distance we create between ourselves and those in distress, those living in and through a situation that is foreign, distasteful, even repugnant to us, scary, sad, like deeply sad, like trauma and crisis that in that distance, call it professional or clinical distancing, we create more suffering. It actually hurts us both. And it actually creates more overwhelm because you don't have anyone standing with you in your trauma experience. What people in crisis want is for someone to stand with them and support them through the crisis. At least that's how I felt. But I wondered about the hundreds, maybe thousands of times in my life when I haven't stood with someone else in crisis or if I professionally distanced myself even when I would hear about or read about someone else's tragedy in the newspaper and then just go about my regular day. I turned to Pete. Petey, have you ever thought about what it must be like for someone like Dr. Radcliffe who comes in and operates on someone with a broken neck, patches them up, tells them they're paralyzed forever and then leaves and really has little idea of what it's like to live paralyzed or even how ventilators work. There was just silence 
as Pete and I drove past another mile marker along the road. Pete was always a thoughtful thinker, but I realized I may have been talking out loud about things I didn't need to. It was just all so hard to take in. I recently interviewed my oldest son, Pete, five years later about this car ride and any memories he had as we together, as a family, are working through metabolizing this traumatic experience. And the look back really helps. Here are some excerpts. I was really kind of thinking about Dr. Radcliffe and our meeting that we had the day before. What's it like for him to just like come operate and then just like go go on business as usual type thing? Yeah. It's a kind of crazy profession in that sense. But I thought he he handled it very well. I thought it was very sympathetic and you know said the right things to us, but you know, only things that he knew he was okay to say because guys like that can't say certain things because they give, you know, families senses of false hope and you know that that could end up being even more crushing than just the reality right at the moment. Yeah. False hope. I guess there is some truth to that. I wonder, why are professionals afraid of giving false hope? I mean, is there such a thing as false hope? Why are professionals afraid of hope? Was that the reason for professional distancing? I do have more notes in my notebook I wrote later that morning that say, quote, clinical distancing with a question mark. And there's another note I wrote, quote, it happens all the time, two completely different worlds, one which is normal for the expert and one that is upside down for the patient, end quote. At the time, I didn't know why those thoughts struck me the way they did. They just did. But you know, they still do now. How can the medical staff person help the patient if they don't know what the patient or the patient's family is going through or what they've been through or how they view the world? I feel to this day that what we want so badly in our crises and in our losses is to experience hope, even if that hope is that we will just make it, that we won't fall apart despite the devastating news. Yes, I wanted Archer to walk again. And yes, it was unfathomable that we would not have him as we knew him, but I can handle the truth. I can. What I wanted was support through the trauma experience. And I wanted someone to feel hopeful with me that we were going to be okay. 
I so wanted Dr. Radcliffe and all the medical staff to join us in that hope. Was that asking too much? As Pete and I continued our drive up the Garden State Parkway, all I knew in that 50-minute car ride on a Saturday morning in hot August, going up the coast in the wrong direction from all the vacationer day trippers, was that I couldn't get back to the ICU fast enough. It was upside down in there, but Archer needed us, and we needed him. I was grateful Pete had asked me to wake him up to come with me. I also had one of our other sons, our youngest son, Dutch, on my mind. He was up at camp, and I had promised I would call him today with an update. Oh, gosh. Dutch would start school soon. I also needed to figure out how Archer would have someone with him at all times if he still had to be here in New Jersey when school started in a couple weeks in Maryland. The big kids had to get back to their lives. The boys back to college and Paula to her job. And Billy and I needed to get back to work. And one of my late night texts from Billy last night had been his thoughts that we should start thinking about friends in Pennsylvania and New Jersey who were empty nesters who might be able to help us for the next week or two. Pete and I passed mile marker 29 on the Garden State Expressway. I continued pondering our family meeting with Dr. Radcliffe and how generous he was sharing his knowledge about the spine, answering Paula's and my questions, but also how disturbing it was the way I was so easily swept up for a moment in the intellectual curiosity of a spinal cord injury to understand how nothing works in the body further downstream from the break itself. And then it struck me the horror of that, but how the intellectual, medical, and anatomical intricacies of the body, it sort of distracted me, distanced me for a few minutes from the fact that we were not just talking about the spine and human anatomy. We were talking about Archer the clarity I was beginning to see was how easy it was, even for me, the mother, to separate the human experience from the intellectual knowledge I craved so I could understand how insidiously easy it was to slide into medical facts or legal facts or financial facts, whatever facts, and to momentarily forget the human suffering. I recalled that little twinge I felt yesterday with Dr. Radcliffe. I think it may have been the whisper of my soul waking me up, reminding me, Learn, be informed, but there is more to being informed than intellectual knowing. Something was stirring in me at a deep level that the medical picture presented 
even by smart doctors, was not the complete picture. I wasn't sure, though. It was just a feeling I had. As Pete and I entered Atlantic City off the expressway, I said to Pete, have you ever thought about it, Petey? Dr. Radcliffe gives us this information about Archer's body not working anymore. Damned up, he said, right? And then he just goes home. I mean, he was nice and he said we'd go to rehab, but he just leaves. I don't hold it against him. It's just so weird to me. How do we live with ourselves when we know of other people's horrible lives and just go on to live our own? I mean, we have to. I guess we are all in Dr. Radcliffe's position, right? We come together, we separate. It's not our life. And on one hand, thank God it's not. But do we really separate? Why do we separate if we do? Do we have to? Are we ever the same once we've entered someone else's experience of suffering? I was thinking again about Dr. Radcliffe. Yeah, I definitely think that he was very professional about everything, honestly. But yeah, when you really think about it, it's a crazy job that he has. You know, he's delivering that type of news, you know, on probably every week, if not even more frequently. Certainly not one that I would want to have. Yeah, gives a lot of compassion for. Yeah, compassionate. It's a good word. Definitely. Yeah, not really. Yeah, definitely more compassionate. No. Yeah, for what he does. But yeah, compassionate's a good word. Yeah, and, it, and, and how courageous it was for him to return to us after. Right, giving. right. He could have just gone home. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I was so mulling over that, you know, he did just go home. But he came back. And then how does he just go home? And then how does he just deliver that kind of news and go home again? Yeah. I hadn't thought about it really since then. But he also, he didn't live in Atlantic City, so. Right. He probably left in in a rush and made it there. But then he might have realized that he needed to be around for at least a little bit longer than that, but it's close enough. He may have gone home, you know, seen his family, gotten a few things kind of, he probably also wanted some time to think about what he would, he was going to say to you and us, you know, maybe for a guy like that, that does it so often, they can just kind of come right then and there, but you know, they probably took him some, some time to really gather his thoughts on the whole situation to know what the right thing was to say. 
the courage and the kindness to come back. And even then to have it, you know, go well and then not go so well. And our, you know, a guy, guy like that almost can't win for losing, you know, right. you don't know what you're going to face, what, what the family's going to be like, or. Right. He can't just say the, the stuff that'll make the conversation go, go smoothly. Yeah. It's, it's just, a, it's that's, a that'd, be even, that'd be even, you know, that would be wrong. Yeah. So many things that could go wrong in that conversation. Yeah, he's got to stick just straight to the facts, honestly. Yeah. But, you know, find a way to mix in his sense of, you know, compassion and, you know, actual emotion that's not just like a robot reporting the the news. Yeah, it's tricky business. Yeah, definitely. How to be professional and also be compassionate. Yeah. And I do have compassion for people in Dr. Radcliffe's shoes delivering the news that they do. And I think it takes courage and good training. I have gratitude that he came back knowing we were in shock and to be with us, to sort of witness us in the unfolding of that shock. It felt like we were one of those stories, you know, one of the ones you read about in a faraway place where an innocent family member steps on a grenade in a minefield they didn't even know was a danger zone. And the family loses a member and the rest of all their lives are shattered with grief. I took in a deep breath, but we hadn't lost Archer. And we were going to make it, right, Lord? Dr. Radcliffe didn't give us any assurances exactly, but he did come back to be with us. I think suffering does affect professionals, you know? But they're taught to distance from it. They are. Maybe so they can keep going. Even some standards of practice are interpreted such that professionals should distance themselves. But I think others' suffering could affect professionals in a good way if they allowed it and if they knew how to enter into the feeling and be with the person or family or became aware of what it stirred in them rather than taking on more suffering. I mean, when you are compassionate, you can enter into the same feeling, but you don't have to merge and take it on. Yeah, I think there's a danger for sure in merging and when we just take it on, but we do want to be connected. We just don't want to lose ourselves in others' pain. I mean, I think Dr. Radcliffe returned because he was, I suppose, affected by Archer. I mean, like he was impacted, you know? He had a chance to stay connected to us. 
He didn't want to separate. Don't you think? Don't you think Dr. Radcliffe saw that? This boy turning into a young man. I think Dr. Radcliffe could see us. We told him what Archer was beginning to do and was capable through athletics and art and oh, what he could create. So clever and smart. I mean, he's 17 and he just saw him maybe the way we saw him, you know, like lying there, his tall, handsome physique, like you, his strong hands that made all kinds of creative things, things that were unique and beautiful. And now he's telling us Archer has no function of his hands, his arms, his legs anymore. He's just entering his life. I said to Pete, I can't get my head around all this. Can you? You know what, Petey? I don't believe all that. I don't think that's Archer's path. I don't. Maybe Dr. Radcliffe did have some sense of that. If he did, I appreciated that more than his medical knowledge. We continued to drive in silence. Pete then said, Yeah, think about all the crazy stuff you hear about in the daily news and social media. And you might think, oh, that's really terrible. And then you go on with your day, I guess. I guess you sort of have to. I thought about his response and I said, yeah, I guess so. It's not wrong, you know. But I just wonder if it has to be that way. You know what I mean? I kind of think Dr. Radcliffe liked being able to come back and talk with us, get to know us a little. And Petey said, yeah, he did come back. Pete and I pulled into the Atlantic Care Hospital parking ramp. Our plan was we'd switch places with Billy, who could then go home to sleep. And he and I would switch again tonight. Day four had begun. We entered through the two floors of security into the trauma unit. What happened with Archer on the rest of this day is quite remarkable. Remember those two pulmonologist surgeons working on Archer whom I told you about? Well, both of them came round this morning, different times, as they came in to check on Archer's tubes. They each said the most remarkable thing. They both commented on Archer's progress. Okay, that's good. But then they both said how we almost lost Archer. Those were the words they used, that we almost lost lost him the night before. 
that was stunning to me. I really didn't fully appreciate the narrow escape we had the night before. I didn't have enough medical knowledge to fully appreciate it. I really didn't fully realize it was life and death for him. He was on that razor sharp edge I had felt with others in the ICU. But the confirmation of escaping death comes a day and a half later. It struck me as such a strange thing how this could be discussed afterwards once the narrow escape had been made, but not a word of it was uttered during the ordeal itself. And so we were in the dark. I wondered how many times this might happen to other families where they really don't know the seriousness of what is happening. And then their family member is just gone. It reminded me of what a flight attendant once told me about the narrow misses on airplanes that passengers will never realize or be apprised about that only the crew and the flight captain know. <laughs> For us, it was the doctor's open acknowledgement to me that we almost lost Archer that seemed to give the nurses permission to talk about it. Like, oh yes, that was a bad night. It's like it was code. Is code another marker of in and out grouping? You know, you either speak the language or you don't. And if you don't, you can be at the mercy of those who do. Is that intensive care unit culture? Is that human nature to only acknowledge the potential for death after the fact when you knew? I plan to ponder this, and maybe you can with me. That irony, that relief that a narrow escape can only be discussed once the horror has passed, when permission has been given by those who knew. Perhaps you have been yourself in such a narrow circumstance and not been fully appreciative of just how narrow. Maybe this is a good thing. I don't know. But in that moment, I remember feeling flooded with gratitude that they saved Archer's life. The tubes and the paddles saved his life. Why is it, though, that we only talk about such things like potential death and narrow escapes or even death after the fact and have no preparation ahead of time? Well, what I could make sense of from what I did know is that since Archer had slept relatively well last night and his vitals were better, the nurses and technicians were more relaxed. They even seemed nicer. They were definitely more forthcoming now that the scary time had passed. 
you know, it's a funny thing how much more truth is revealed the more relaxed and confident you are. The more I'm molded over, the more the ICU environment kind of made sense to me. They knew how dire it was, but we didn't. But I still don't think that's an excuse for their not being forthcoming or not helping me get important medical information. I stepped into the hallway to talk again with one of the pulmonologists who is outside our curtain, talking with other medical personnel, presumably about Archer. I thanked him for all that he did to keep Archer alive. And you know what happened? He looked straight at me and said, the machines can only do so much. Your son is very strong-willed. That really blew my mind. Yes, Archer was strong-willed. But was the doctor telling me that one's mindset can overcome near death? The nurses, too, all that morning were remarking on Archer being strong and that he had a strong heart. They told me his heartbeat would go so faint during the times when even the ventilator and breathing machines couldn't breathe his lungs for him. And then it would beat again. Slow, but strong. Yes, I was filled with a quiet joy hearing that. I knew Archer had a strong will to live. He loved life. But what I was really filled with was inner knowing. Do you know what I mean? Like when you knew something without studying or having been told and you just knew. You know what I mean? I was beginning to feel it all over again, that same inner knowing feeling I had when I beheld Archer two nights ago in the operating room before he went into that neck surgery on the gurney when I was allowed into the OR, seeing him in that golden light. He was glowing, and I felt that he had been touched by God in a very real way. And when Archer confirmed that he was given a choice to come back and he chose to live. I knew dying in this hospital was not part of that plan. Maybe that's why I wasn't fully appreciative of the night before last. I just didn't have dying on my radar of possibilities. I don't know. A part of me was disquieted, though, by what the doctors making their rounds had to say, that Archer was so close to death. I couldn't even say that word. But that it was apparently still something that could happen in this hospital, even when Archer told God he chose to live knowing he was paralyzed. He said, yes.
I didn't understand any of this. What I was sure about at a very visceral level, like in myself, was that if Archer died here, it would be because we failed him. It would not be because of his free will or his giving up. I just felt that this hospital, in as bad a shape as Archer was, regardless, it was not his exit point. I can't explain it more than that. I mean, the mom and me couldn't even begin to tolerate an idea that my son might not make it, might not pull through, might not, oh, all the other euphemisms for death. But something bigger and more powerful in me told me that it just wasn't his time, even though he was paralyzed in the most horrific way. It was sort of confusing, but not really at all. I felt God was by his side in a special way because Arthur had had a moment of choice, a second chance to choose. And he, even though he knew he was paralyzed, chose to live. He said, yes. Yes, Archer loved life and he loved living. He wasn't going to give up. But they were the medical experts. I couldn't make sense of what I was learning and what I knew. So I also felt more on guard. Do you know what I mean? Like I had to pay close attention. I know this will sound really nutty, but I felt that day as if there was evil lurking here in this hospital that we had to shield Archer's body from. Okay, that does sound crazy. And I own that it is a little wild and out there. But that's what I felt that morning. Thank God for Billy. I shared that with him before he left the hospital, almost whispering. He didn't think I was crazy. Billy said, Wheezy, the devil is a clever guy. I can't imagine what Archer is up against. Yes, I will learn how it works here, and I will be on guard. I made some notes in my notebook. Do doctors know everything? With a question mark. And I wrote, Doctors can be professional and compassionate. And the devil is a clever guy. Oh, Lord, how I am so grateful Billy and I are on the same page about the big things in life. The most important things in the big picture. Billy and I changed guard around 10 a.m. He texted me, probably from the parking garage, like he almost always did, like afterthoughts, that he was just remembering 
or hadn't had a chance to tell me before he got on the road, I found myself doing the same thing. Only so much time in our comings and goings here to remember everything we needed to tell each other. This is what Billy texted. Can you massage shoulders, nurse blink, itch chest, move head, lift up bed, mucus in ear, take remote, lift my arm, fresh cloth, suction mouth, suction the tube, other side. I showed Dad's text to Pete. We realized he had been adding to a list of Archer's requests that he had asked for most often. Pete got to work on the ABC board writing it all out. I remember how Pete and I smiled at each other at that last request on Billy's list. Brilliant. Pete wrote, other side, at the bottom of the row of requests on the board, where I knew we could both start our conversations with Archer. And we could then flip the board to the side with the individual letters if Archer had something else he wanted to communicate. But I learned something new recently in an interview about that ABC board with Pete. Do you remember with the message board? Yeah. Yeah, because you were quite instrumental. <laughs> you bought the message board. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that, that was, uh, gave us a way to, to talk with Arch. It did. How, how'd you come up with that idea? Um, I mean, it's pretty elementary when you really think about it. And, you know, through the, a few days of kind of frustration of not being able to know what Archer wanted and needed, you know, we just kind of started spelling stuff out. And so we just wanted like a, an easier way to do it and visualize it. So we got a whiteboard and like some stickers of the whole alphabet and organize it on the whiteboard. And so that we could just like scan the, the, the board from A to Z and like Archer could nod when, you know, the marker was hovering over the letter that he wanted. And then, you know, we had a separate whiteboard where we would write, write it down, you know, all right, W and then start again. Nod, you know, all right, A, you know, and so, and the, so once you get through a few, you can kind of figure out what he's getting at. Oh, you want, want some water. Great. So, and then from there, we, um, we took one of the whiteboards and just wrote down like, you know, the five or five or six most common requests. Cause it, cause it does take a while to go through letter by letter to spell something out. So we kind of wrote down the five or six most common requests on there so that anytime he needed something, you know, we could start there with those six things before we actually went into actually spelling spelling it out letter by letter if it was something that wasn't on that board. So I think that that was, that was awesome. And I think Archer it's big for Archer. I think he felt like he could, you know, actually communicate what he wanted at certain time. I think it also helped us to, you know, feel like we were actually doing something other than just kind of sitting there, which it, it had kind of felt like, you know, just sitting there like emotional support for, you know, the first few days, but 
that um, definitely kind of turned the corner so, to the point where us and being in the room kind of actually made a big difference for him being able to, you know, s- satisfy and fulfill these, you know, they're all minor things, but, you know, when you're in that state, in that bed, you know, probably <laughs> much more important than you would think they would be. Yeah, it was awesome and provided even like conversation between us for what he needed. You know, Pete, I didn't realize, I'm just learning that you, there were two boards, but I didn't realize that it was a whiteboard. I thought you bought it with the ABC. Uh, they were those little um, felt things. Yeah, they were like foam. Like yeah. Yeah, I thought it I thought you it came that way from like, you know, the Walgreens or something, but you actually bought those separate, like what, the, the toy section or something? And then Yeah, it was just like an alphabet of stickers of like they were yeah, they were kind of like, you know, very thin foam stickers. And we stuck them on and on the whiteboard. Yeah. I didn't realize that you actually made the ABC board. We went to one store. It was like a dollar store or something. I thought it was a Walgreens. It was a dollar store? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm sure you could find something similar, but not in a pinch. No, not in a pinch. Yeah. Well, that makes sense why the back of it was cork. Because that was where you, you wrote with the marker what the requests were. Well, so that... Dad then sent us a list of requests that Archer had been making, I guess, you know, in the night or early morning before we got there. And you then added them. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of consolidated. and Yeah. Exactly. Consolidated and updated. And, And then you were leaving because you wanted to tell Archer then goodbye and there was something else that he wanted to tell you or ask of you. This is my recollection. So I'm curious what your recollection is. And it wasn't, it wasn't on the side of the board of the regular requests. And so you went to the, you flipped it uh-huh. and went to the ABC side. I don't know. Do you remember? And then do you remember what happened? What he, what he was asking for? I think it was um, it, an H-U-G. Yeah. Yeah, which was kind of a, a nice moment there. It's really a nice moment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there weren't many things that weren't on that list of, you know, the typical requests. Even once it got to be, you know, 10 plus items long, you know, one of them was normally what he was going for there. But yeah, that was, that was. That was a little, you know, tearjerker moment. Yeah. It's affecting me like that right now. Definitely. It was, it was, it was a good moment. For you too. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Brotherly love. Isn't it remarkable how our spirits yearn to be held, to be reminded of love when we are so broken. And the power of a hug 
I'll never forget the remarkable moment of Pete giving Archer a hug. Or was it Archer giving Pete a hug? I remember your big hands. You know, both you and Archer have such big hands. And how you slid your big hands around kind of under him. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was a good hug. <laughs> they held it for a while, too. Yeah. But, you know, got to be gen- gotta be gentle. Yeah. Found a way to do that, though. You did. You found a way to do that. A really good, big, gentle, long-lasting hug. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Pete. That was so awesome. That was awesome. Yep. Pete added to the back of the ABC board, want a hug as one of Archer's requests. A simple ABC board with felt letters from the dollar store. The power of communication. I hope you make an ABC board too, if you need one. Isn't it remarkable, the power of a hug? A good, long hug. They last. I can still feel it myself to this day. Maybe you can too. In this tragedy, my boys were becoming men. Tender and compassionate men. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Maybe there is someone you need to give a hug to. Or maybe you might consider giving a little mind hug of compassion to your judgment about someone else whom you've questioned or someone who didn't seem to take your best interest to heart might have even hurt you. Compassion. Well, it goes a long way. It doesn't mean we agree with somebody or that we even like them. It's just an incredible capacity we have as human beings to enter into another's painful experience with love and without judgment. It's what doctors could do rather than clinical distancing. Compassion and hope, they don't guarantee anything. Oh, how they lift the soul. I think the way of compassion is how we move forward in the world with grace and reclaim our own freedom. And don't forget, compassion for yourself too. A lot of it, especially if you're suffering or if you work around a lot of other people who are suffering. The more we can acknowledge we are all just doing the best we can, the more we can take care of ourselves, like asking for a hug. And then 
others can respond to us with love. That's how we care for each other. One remarkable request. One remarkable response. It's good for humankind. When we live in grace that's there for us all along, it allows us to be up close with others in their suffering and surprisingly feel more whole, more complete than shattered. Yes, that's grace. And when we love each other in that way, it's good for the planet. And it elevates our souls. I'm sure your one request for compassion or your one response of compassion to someone else's request makes legions of angels sing. That's remarkable. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Senf directly. Louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. She would love to hear from you.